Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margo, and this is a true crime podcast where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. All right, y'all. Today, I am bringing you part two of Randy Kraft, the scorecard killer. The interesting thing about serial killers of the 70s and 80s is that they were not alone. They were not out killing alone. And what I mean by that is that various serial killers were roaming the streets and the highways simultaneously just ticking people off one by one. Sometimes serial killer victims would be thought to be the work of other serial killers. And today we will briefly explore not only Randy Kraft's crimes, but also the crimes of other serial killers killing at the same time. If you haven't listened to part one, I'd highly recommend pausing this episode and listening there first. Again, same warnings as last time. Randy Kraft was a twisted and sick individual who did twisted and sick things to his victims. If you can't handle dark, true crime, skip this episode. It's not for you. You have been warned. Join me today as I continue to discuss the crimes of serial killer Randy Kraft, also known as the scorecard killer. Now let's dig in. Shout out to Sloan from Killer Queens for researching and writing this episode. Sources for this episode include articles found in the Orange Coast, LA Times, Murderpedia, RandyCraft.com, Patch.com, and an opinion by the California Supreme Court. When I left off in part one, Randy had just lost his job, lost his four-year relationship with Jeff Graves, and he had just been arrested for lewd conduct. Well, Randy always seemed to land on his feet, at least with jobs, and he quickly picked up a job with a consulting firm doing Lord knows what. But it's during this time that murders continue and that task force I talked about, well, they were nowhere near stopping this guy. And the body count climbed and climbed and climbed as the murders became more and more brutal. That year in 1975, on New Year's Eve, 22-year-old Mark Howard Hall disappeared. He had gone out with some friends for the night and hopped around a couple of different parties. Well, Mark was at a party in San Juan Capistrano to ring in the new year when he fell asleep on the couch and vanished. But two days later, on January 3rd, 1973, Mark's body was found nude in Cleveland National Forest. He was found there by two off-duty officers. Mark was tied to a tree. He had been sodomized and tortured. His legs were cut by a knife and his eyes, face, chest and genitals were all burned by a car cigarette lighter. Worse still was that a cocktail swizzle stick had been shoved into his penis through his urethra. It had been shoved in so hard and so far that it punctured his bladder. But the murderer wasn't done. No, Mark's genitals had then been cut off and forced into his rectum. 
along with dirt and leaves. These were all said to have been inflicted post-mortem. Mark's blood alcohol level was measured at seven times the legal limit for intoxication and was likely fatal. But he also had diazepam, which is Valium, which is used for anxiety, seizures and muscle spasms. And he also had over-the-counter cold medicine in his system. However, in addition to all of that, he had leaves and dirt stuffed into his throat, which cut off his airway. Less than a foot away from his head, there was a neck of a broken bottle. And within 20 feet of his body, police found more pieces of broken glass that was later determined to be part of the same bottle. Now, investigators were investigating and they were actually able to obtain a fingerprint from those pieces. So it was like they might actually have some clues as to who the killer might be. But the sheriff's department lost the print before it could be run or compared to any database, and they were back to square one. And this case soon grew cold. By 1976, Randy was in his late 20s, early 30s, and it was this year that he met a younger love interest, a 19-year-old baker by the name of Jeff Sealing. Randy was 10 years Jeff's senior, but this made it easier for Randy to be the dominant partner. Randy would encourage Sealing to try new things. Randy wanted them to be more adventurous in their sexual relationship, and the relationship seemed to blossom. The new couple moved in together in an apartment in Laguna Hills, but the secret life of Randy Kraft continued. In March of that year, 13-year-old Oliver Peter Molitor was found dead in Manhattan Beach. Two and a half weeks later, on April 7th, 17-year-old Kenneth Eugene Buchanan was found dead in Englewood. April 19th, 14-year-old Larry Armandares was found in Los Angeles. On June 11th, 13-year-old Michael Craig McGee was found in Redondo Beach. And then in October, 16-year-old Randall Lawrence was found in a trash bag along Highway 80. On December 10th, 19-year-old Paul Fuchs vanished from Ripple's Bar in Redondo Beach and was never seen again. All of these bodies, boom, 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 all just back to back to back to back. It was, it was overwhelming for police still who had not figured out who was killing all these men and these young boys. But they soon got sidetracked when another serial killer became their focus. It was 1977 and a man named Patrick Carney surrendered to the police. Patrick, maybe because he was feeling guilty or maybe because he knew that he would never stop until he got caught. Well, this guy waltzed into the police station and confessed to 28 murders. What? Yes, he confessed to the murder of 28 young men. Oh, snap. Except his MO or his modest operandi was to shoot his victims, place them in trash bags, and then dispose of them from there. So now the police were stunned. How many of the young male victims had been Patrick's doing and how many were someone else's? Well, almost as if serial killers had any type of ethics, when the police confronted Patrick about victims who had been brutally sodomized and tortured, Patrick Carney was like, no, 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 no. He balked at the suggestion that he was that weird. While Patrick was eager to confess to his 28 murders, he would not, I repeat, he would not concede to killing any of the other men. That's where he drew the line in the sand. 
which is a bit comical when you think about it. Like, I'll do this, but I'd never do that. But police would no longer have any doubt that there was still another serial killer on the loose when after Patrick Carney was arrested, the gruesome violent murders of young men continued. And just as a side note, of the six more recent young men that I just mentioned earlier that I just kind of named off, only Paul Fuchs would later be linked to Randy Kraft. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. In the 70s, when serial killers were seemingly everywhere, the media began giving them these names since they didn't know their real names. And this was supposed to be a way to make the killer less abstract to the general public. Well, there was also some confusion regarding the nickname, the Freeway Killer. Randy was occasionally called the Freeway Killer, but this name was also attributed to William Bonin in the early 80s. Now, Bonin and Randy were both fond of young men, and they both dumped their victims on the side of the road. But Bonin would stop his car before the body dump whereas Randy pushed his victims from a fast-moving vehicle. Bonin also didn't do any torturing or genital mutilation. And while Randy had been murdering since about 1972, Bonin began his murder streak in August of 79, eventually getting caught less than a year later. Now, Bonin was ultimately dubbed the real freeway killer. And after Bonin went to jail, Randy continued doing his thing for three more years. On April 16, 1977, 18-year-old Marine Scott Michael Hughes was found beside Freeway 91. Scott was stationed at Camp Pendleton, and he had been known by his fellow Marines as a boisterous doper, whatever that means. Now, Scott had left his base the Friday after telling his buddies that he was headed up to Washington State 
to visit his brother who was suffering from cancer. But at about 7 a.m. on Sunday, his body had been found just off of the on-ramp to the Riverside Freeway in Anaheim. He was fully dressed, but the laces in his boots were missing and his pants were stained with blood. Once they were removed, it was obvious why there was blood. His genitals had been mutilated and his left testicle was gone. Scott had abrasions on the left side of his face and road burn all over. He had been strangled with a ligature of some kind. When his blood was tested, there was no alcohol, but there was Valium in his system at three times the therapeutic level. However, his cause of death was ligature strangulation. The next body was found on June 11th. 23-year-old Roland Young had been released from jail at about 8.19 p.m. after one of his many stays for public intoxication. Now, he hadn't even been out of jail a full eight hours when his body was found the next day at 3.30 in the morning in a gutter in Irvine. When discovered, Roland was not wearing a shirt and his pants were saturated with blood in the crotch area. There were road burns on him and blood on the pavement that indicated that Roland's body had bounced when it hit the road. He was missing his left shoelace and his belt. Roland's jail release form was still in his pocket and his socks and shoes had been labeled LACO, L-A-C-O, because they had been issued to him by the Los Angeles County Jail. He had alcohol and Valium in his system, and it was determined that his wrist had been bound while his scrotum, one testicle, and part of his penis were removed, and then he was stabbed four times in the chest, all stab wounds piercing his heart. Then the murderer put Roland's clothes back on. His blood alcohol level was 0.09%, and he had diazepam in his blood and stomach. While these weren't at lethal levels, they would have easily incapacitated him for the murderer to get the jump on him. The day of Roland's funeral, yet another body was discovered. 20-year-old Marine Richard Keith, he had been hitchhiking from Camp Pendleton to Los Angeles to visit his girlfriend. However, when he got to her, she was pissed as hell. You know why she was mad? She was mad because he had hitchhiked and he did that frequently and she didn't like it. So the couple got into a fight and Richard left her place at around 11 p.m. on June 18th to hitchhike back to Camp Pendleton. But he never made it back. Instead, his dead body was found by an off-duty fireman the following morning at 5.15 a.m. He was nude on the side of Molten Parkway. He had been pushed from a moving vehicle. Now, his blood alcohol level was at 0.07%, and he had both diazepam, Valium, and florazepine, Dalmane, in his system. I don't know if I said that right. These are just drugs that are usually prescriptions. So these drugs are similar, but florazepam is more potent. Both of these drugs are used to treat anxiety and seizures, and florazepam was also listed as a short-term treatment for insomnia. While these drugs would have definitely made him very sleepy or even unconscious, his cause of death was ultimately ruled ligature strangulation. Richard Keith's murder triggered a train of thought for investigators. Richard and various other victims were pushed from a moving vehicle that was traveling at a high rate of speed. Now, investigators start to think about it. 
and they thought it would be difficult for one person to drive, push a dead body from a car. I mean, could there be two people responsible for some or all of these murders? That was something they would keep in the back of their mind throughout their investigation. Then on July 6, 1978, 23-year-old Keith Klingbeil was found at 3.30 a.m. in a northbound lane of I-5 in Mission Viejo. Keith, however, unlike the other victims, was still alive. However, he was clinging on for dear life. Paramedics were called and they arrived quickly, but by the time they got there, Keith was gone. Keith was fully dressed and only missing his left bootlace. He had road burns all over his body, indicating he too had been pushed from a moving vehicle. An autopsy later revealed that he had massive amounts of liquor and Tylenol in his system and ligature marks around his ankles. Now, the acetaminophen levels were ruled to have caused his death with the contributing factor of ligature strangulation. He also had the familiar burns from the car cigarette lighter around his left nipples that had been inflicted while he was still alive. On November 18th of 78 was the day the body of 21-year-old truck driver Michael Joseph Enderbeaton was found. Michael had gone out to a nightclub the night before with his friends. Now, the nightclub wasn't too far from his house. However, the designated driver for their group met a woman at the bar and he left his passengers stranded at the bar. Now, another woman offered to give them all a ride home and they all crammed into a tiny car. But due to the size of the car, a girl had to sit on Michael's lap. However, Michael took advantage of the situation and he pinched the girl. So unsurprisingly, she slapped the crap out of him. Annoyed and probably slightly embarrassed, Michael got out of the car and he was like, you know what? I'll walk home. Sadly, Michael's body was found at 6.15 the next morning when he was spotted by a passing driver. He was only wearing pants that were not pulled up all the way so that his buttocks was actually exposed. There were ligature marks on his wrist and road burns on his body. The road burns indicated that he had been pushed from a slow moving vehicle. Sadly, Michael had his genitals removed while he was still alive. His eyelids and nipples had been burned with a car cigarette lighter like many of the other victims. And much like the other victims, Michael's blood alcohol level was 0.16% and he had diazepam in his stomach. He also had something called sacrobabital in his system, and that was typically used to treat insomnia for short periods of time. The combined effect of all three of these medications would definitely have rendered him unconscious. His cause of death was listed as suffocation. And a little bit surprising, Michael's body had been found only 20 feet from where the body of Edward Moore had been found back in 72. That was six years earlier. It was evident this serial killer was far from done with his reign of terror over California. In fact, more than a dozen bodies were found scattered along California roadways in the following year. Of these bodies, only a few were ever identified. Thirteen-year-old Thomas Lundgren had been found in Agora, after he disappeared on May 28, 1979, after being picked up in Reseda, Thomas was beaten and strangled before being stabbed multiple times and his throat was cut. 
Thomas's genitals were also severed. The body of Donald Harold Crystal was dumped out of a moving vehicle along Freeway 405 in Irvine between 9.30 and 9.45 p.m. on June 16th of 79. Multiple people had reportedly seen his body get pushed out the door of a moving car, and he had tire tracks on his boxers as well as road burn on his body. He was still warm to the touch when the police arrived and the blood was trickling from his nostrils, but he was dead. Donald, the 20-year-old Marine, had ligature marks on his neck and wrist, and his cause of death was determined to be from an overdose of alcohol and painkillers. While his blood alcohol was only measured at 0.06%, he had what was called potentially fatal levels of acetaminophen and antihistamines in his system. The type of acetaminophen or painkiller that was in his system was actually later banned from medical use after 1983 due to being dangerous. His left nipple had been burned with a car cigarette lighter after he was dead. On August 6th of 79, the body of 19-year-old Marcus Grads was found after hitchhiking from Newport Beach. Just like the men before him, he had been sodomized, stabbed, and strangled before being discarded beside the Ventura Freeway near the Los Angeles County line. 15-year-old Donald Hayden was alive and well in Hollywood on August 26, 1979. But after 1 a.m. on the 27th, he would never be seen alive again. His sodomized and strangled body was found by construction workers in Liberty Canyon in a dumpster at a new housing area. On September 9th, 17-year-old David Murillo was hitchhiking on Highway 101 when he vanished. Two days later, his nude, dead body was discovered on the side of the road. He, too, had been bludgeoned and sodomized and had rope burns on his ankles, indicating that he had been tied up. It's at this point that local gay bars begin to post warnings for their customers. They are starkly aware that young men are turning up dead left and right for the last several years. The bars post photos of the John Doe's in an attempt to get more information about them. And I'm not sure what the atmosphere was like at the time surrounding these murders, but there was one patron who surely was not even the least bit afraid. That patron, Randy Kraft. Heck, he's living the dream at this point. In fact, he's doing extremely well at work and even recently purchased a house in Long Beach where he and his boothang, Jeff Sealing live. The couple had enough expendable money that they were traveling and living the American dream. In August of 78, they jet set off to Mexico. Then in May of 79, the couple visited Lake Tahoe. They also went on a journey along the East Coast, traveling from New York City down to Key West. Now, friends remember the couple, each holding their own odd hours. Sealing operated a bakery, and he generally had to be there extra early to prepare for his morning clients or his morning customers. While Randy was a freelance data processing consultant, so he could kind of do work wherever. By the end of 1979, the police stopped releasing information about the victims other than their names, rank if they're military, and the number of victims. Now, I don't know why they did this, but they did. And it seemed that most media outlets, they were kind of bored with the story and they ignored the story altogether. And only one reporter for the Orange County Register wrote a story about this repeat offender. Then in August of 1980, Randy got a new job with new hours and a new salary. He began consulting with Lear Sigler Industries, making $50,000 a year to start. 
Now, with inflation today, that salary would equal something like $160,000 annually. Not only was Randy making great money now, this new job allowed him an opportunity his other job did not. Travel. Yes, his consulting company did business in Michigan and Oregon, opening Randy's victim pool to a brand new set of men. And as most serial killers that we have come upon, Randy Kraft was beloved by all whom worked with him. At work, he was seen as a self-starter and an excellent problem solver. He was called a, quote, exceptional employee who deserved excellent treatment, end quote. When you travel for work, there's a slew of issues that can crop up, right? For example, some people turn to junk food, which Randy did. And this wouldn't normally be a problem besides maybe on your waistline. But remember, Randy had glycemia issues and this caused a few health concerns. But on top of this, Randy and Sealing's relationship began to deteriorate. They would eventually seek counseling and the counseling mentioned that their relationship was quite toxic. They attempted to rekindle the fire that once burned and they even planned a trip to Europe, but they could never, ever make that trip work. And well, Randy found passion in his favorite pastime, killing. And now with a traveling job, he found new victims. In the summer of 1980, while in Oregon, Randy came into contact with Michael Sean O'Fallon. O'Fallon was a 17-year-old and he had a plan to see the world. Being from Oregon, he decided in June that he was going to hitchhike to British Columbia. Now, his mom let him take her camera that had her initials MJO. They were scratched on the front of the camera. Now, he got through his entire trip and returned back to Oregon safely. But then he took an ill-fated ride with none other than Randy Stephen Kraft. O'Fallon's body was found just after 5 a.m. on July 17, 1980. He was nude on the side of I-5. He had been hogtied with his own shoelaces and had a cord tied tightly around his scrotum. At his autopsy, O'Fallon was found to have been strangled to death, but he also had almost lethal levels of alcohol and Valium in his system. The next day, the body of another man was found on the side of I-5. The body was that of a white male estimated to be between 35 and 40 years old. Unfortunately, he had no identification, and to this day, he hasn't been identified. We'll call him John Doe number 4. However, just like the other victims, he was missing his bootlaces, had high blood alcohol level, diazepam in his system, and he had been strangled with a ligature. Later on September 3rd of 1980, a group of children found the dead body of Robert Wyatt Loggins Jr. This body was in a plastic garbage bag and then a sheet of clear plastic was wrapped around him and tied at his neck. 19-year-old Robert was last seen on Friday, August 22nd. He had been confined to the barracks for drinking, and on his first night out, Roberts vanished. He had left Marine Corps Air Station Tustin in California with friends with the plan of going out drinking. Now, the friends drove to a back road where they all drank Southern Comfort directly from the bottle until it was empty. Then they headed to a liquor store for more booze. However, Robert randomly decided, I don't want to go. I want to spend the night on the beach. And he could not be convinced in any other direction. 
Now, despite his friend's attempts to get him in the car, Robert walked off. When they went to find him later, hoping that he'd sobered up and maybe, you know, come to his senses, he was nowhere to be found. And Robert didn't show up for work on Monday morning. When his body was found in a plastic garbage bag, Robert was in the fetal position and nude. He had a rope tied around his wrists and ankles with his feet tied up by his head. There was a sock in the bag with him near his rectum. It was determined that Robert had been dead for two or three days. And because of the state of his decomposition in that short period of time, a definitive cause of death was not determined. However, he also had deadly levels of alcohol in his system. But instead of Valium, Robert had been heavily dosed with antihistamines. His blood alcohol level was 0.24%. And the measurement of the alcohol in his brain was 0.25%. While the antihistamines were in his system, his friends never saw him take anything. So it was unclear when he would have consumed the antihistamines. However, even though Roberts was found in a garbage bag, his death was ruled an accident until after Kraft's arrest in 1983. Wait, what? How can someone whose entire body is found in a garbage bag be considered an accident? These types of determinations never make sense to me. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. 1980 turned into 1981, and the first victim of the year was found at around 8.40 a.m. on April 10th. 17-year-old Michael Dwayne Cluck's still warm body was found in Gosham, Oregon, near the I-5. His body was naked below the waist. There was blood on a good portion of his body and face, and he had 16 wounds from some sort of weapon to the back of his head. Whatever was used to hit him in the head caused his skull to cave in. He had been brutally sodomized like the victims before him, but he had also been savagely kicked and beaten to death. His thighs and groin area were covered in fingernail scratches. Cluck's blood alcohol level was measured at 0.09% and he had codeine, which requires a prescription, and he had two other forms of antihistamines in his system. His urine was found to contain decongestants, 
pain relievers, antihistamines, and anti-anxiety meds. Interestingly, the day Cluck's body was found, Randy made a quick trip to the hospital. He claimed that he had been walking barefoot in his hotel room in Oregon and somehow hurt his foot. His foot was bruised, but otherwise he'd walk out of the hospital that same day and be just fine. Then on July 29th, the police in the area of Echo Park in Los Angeles began receiving calls of a terrible odor near the freeway. Officers came out to investigate and discovered not one, but two decaying bodies. What? Now, the bodies were later identified as 13-year-old Raymond Davis and 16-year-old Robert Avila. Both boys had been reported missing. Now, Raymond went missing after he went out to look for his lost dog, and Robert had been reported missing from Hollywood. Just three weeks after finding Raymond and Robert, 17-year-old Christopher Williams' body was found on the side of the road in the San Bernardino Mountains. Christopher had developed a reputation in Hollywood as a, quote, hustler. When his body was found, paper had been jammed into his nostrils and he had two different sedatives in his system. Randy, by this point, had no intention of stopping his murder spree. And at this point, even if Randy is out of town for two days, while he's in a new town, young men end up going missing and murdered. Randy was working in Oregon on November 23rd and 24th of 82. Despite being there for only two days, Randy drove his rental for a surprising 230 miles. Where the hell did he go, right? On November 24th, 1982, 26-year-old Brian Witcher's body was found along the I-5 up near Portland, Oregon. He had last been seen alive on the 23rd by a friend. Now, turns out that Brian was yet another Randy Kraft victim. And in Randy's usual style, Brian had been dosed with alcohol. His blood alcohol content was 0.31. He had Valium in his system and then he was asphyxiated. When discovered, Brian was dressed except for shoes and his belt. And he had been disposed of by being thrown from a moving vehicle. Then Randy quickly transitioned from Oregon to a conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. About a week after Brian Witcher was discovered, 29-year-old Anthony Jose Silveira vanished on December 3rd of 82. He vanished while he was hitchhiking to his National Guard duty station. Now, Anthony was a married man, and since he didn't own a car, he would often hitchhike from his home in Eagle Point, Oregon, to his duty station in Medford. Because he was going to be on duty, he often carried with him his uniform with his name tape on it. Well, Anthony called his wife on the 3rd, but that would be the last time anyone ever heard from him. He never reported for duty as scheduled. And not surprising, Randy Kraft was in Oregon from December 1st through the 4th of that year. Now, Anthony's body was found on December 18th near the I-5. He was naked and it was noted that he'd likely been there for a while as his body was pretty badly decomposing. Again, examination of Anthony revealed blood alcohol content of 0.23% and the presence of Valium. He was then strangled with a ligature consistent with a belt. He also had something forced into his rectum that had been removed before his body was dumped. However, whatever had been in his rectum and removed was replaced with a red plastic toothbrush that was still partially 
inside of him when he was found. On December 4th, Randy made a visit to his friend Gary Newell in Seattle, Washington. Gary said that Randy had driven his rental car there and that he had seen a jacket with Randy that was, I don't know, it was like an army jacket with what they call, what he called a Hispanic sounding name that he believed started with an S on it. Now, Gary said that Randy told him he was headed to Grand Rapids, Michigan in the morning and there was no further conversation about the army jacket. Once in Grand Rapids on December 5th, Randy checked into his hotel at the Amway Grand Plaza Hotel, and he went to his 11th floor room to get ready for the seminar he was going to attend. Now, this same Monday, Anthony Silveira would fail to report for duty with the National Guard. Two days after Randy checked into his hotel in Michigan, he would meet his next victims in the hotel bar. Dennis Alt, 24 years old, and Christopher Schnoborn, 20. They were cousins who had attended an agriculture convention at the convention center near the Amway Grand Plaza. And they went out that night to the Tootsie Van Kelly's bar in the Amway Hotel. Also at Tootsie Van Kelly's was creeper Randy Kraft. Randy had come to Tootsie's after having a business dinner with a co-worker and a few other people. Now, friendly Randy ended up striking up an hour-long conversation with 20-year-old Christopher. 24-year-old Dennis had asked another cousin of his who'd shown up at the bar for a ride home. Now, the cousin went to get his jacket and he went to close out his tab at the bar. And when he returned, Dennis was gone. No one ever saw or heard from Dennis nor Christopher again. Two days later, on December 9th, 1982, The bodies of Dennis Alt and Christopher Schoenburn were both found about nine miles from the hotel. Dennis's pants were undone and his genitals were exposed. He wasn't wearing socks or shoes and he had been strangled to death with a ligature after being incapacitated by, you guessed it, alcohol and Valium. Christopher was also intoxicated and drugged with Valium. His body was in much the same state as Dennis, but he also had a ballpoint pen with the hotel insignia shoved into his urethra so far and hard that it entered the soft tissue of his pelvis, causing significant bleeding. On December 8th, after Randy checked out of his 11th floor hotel room, hotel security found Anthony Silveria's army jacket. It was draped over a chair in the elevator lobby, less than 20 feet from Randy Kraft's hotel room. Mind you, Anthony went missing in Oregon. This hotel was in Michigan. Also, after Randy checked out, housekeeping found a set of keys in his room, in his room, in Randy's room. The keys were taken to Lost and Found and they later turned out to belong to none other than Dennis Alt. The keys belonged to his Ford Bronco and his Yamaha snowmobile. And the bodies kept coming. The day after Randy checked out and the same day that cousins Dennis and Christopher's bodies were found, another body was found. (music) 19-year-old Lance Tags was originally from Hawaii. He didn't have a car, so he would often hitchhike. This time, he had a blue tote bag with Hawaii written on the side And the bag was filled with surfing clothes and his nunchucks. 
Now, he was a proud Hawaiian, so many of his pieces of clothing had Hawaii printed on them. He also had his Hawaii identification with him, and he left his home on December 8th, and his body was found the next morning on the side of I-5, less than one-fourth of a mile from where the body of Brian Witcher was found. Lance was wearing a red shirt and swim trunks, but he wasn't wearing anything else. His trunks were undone and the inside of them were dirty, suggesting that he had been redressed. He had been shoved out of a moving vehicle, but he was already dead when that happened. Lance had an orange sock shoved deeply into his throat, causing him to suffocate to death. On top of that, his blood alcohol was measured at 0.07%. And diazepam and nordizapan, this drug does many of the same things as diazepam, but is also used as a muscle relaxer. They were in his system. And it was at this point in Oregon where Oregon officials are freaking the hell out as they begin to see a lot of similarities in the Oregon bodies being dumped on the side of the road. And for some reason or another, they reach out to California officials to see what gives. Once they realize there are similarities not only in Oregon, but in California, authorities with both states, they start searching airline records, hotel records, and car rentals in hopes of finding a person who made frequent trips to and from Oregon and Southern California. And their hard work pays off when, wouldn't you know it, the name Randy Stephen Kraft pops up 18, that's one eight, different times on their list. However, by the time all the pieces of the puzzle begin to come together, Randy Kraft is no longer a free man because he had already been caught up for driving while intoxicated. Oh, and let's not forget the dead passenger police just happened upon while making that DUI stop. But while investigators were putting the pieces of their puzzle together between Anthony Silveira's murder in December of 82 and Randy's May 83 arrest, Randy was still out there killing. And these were his remaining victims that we know of. On January 28, 1983, the body of 21-year-old Eric Church, a known hitchhiker, was found beaten and strangled along the 605 freeway. Eric was found clothed down to his burgundy socks, but he wasn't wearing any shoes. Eric had been thrown from a moving vehicle, and when examined, it was noted he had been sodomized. However, even though it was the early 80s and DNA wasn't exactly what it is today, semen was found on his body and it was later found to be a match for Randy Kraft's blood type. Eric's blood alcohol was at a 0.07% and he had diazepam in his system at lethal levels. However, cause of death was determined to be the ligature strangulation he had sustained. Weeks later, on February 11, 1983, 18-year-old Jeffrey Nelson and 20-year-old Roger Duvall Jr. disappeared. They had been out enjoying the nightlife and bar hopping near Claremont College, which is Randy's alma mater. Two days later, their bodies were found in the usual Randy Kraft style on the side of the road. An officer on his way to work saw Nelson's naked body first. He thought he saw Nelson move, so he went back to his cruiser to call it in. When the other officer got there, Nelson's body was noted to still be warm, but he had no pulse and he wasn't breathing. The officers noted as well that there were road burns on his body and matching skids on the road, 
indicating he had been pushed from a moving vehicle, as per usual for Randy Kraft. There were ligature marks on his neck and wrist, and Nelson's penis and scrotum were cut off. But since the bleeding was limited, it was later assumed that this was done after he was dead. His blood alcohol was determined to be at 0.14%, and he also had diazepam in his bloodstream. In his stomach was propranolol, which is a prescription medication generally used to treat heart issues. It was mentioned in the autopsy that this combination would have made him, quote, very, very noticeably sedated, end quote. Then later that day, a motorist noticed Duvall's body in the San Bernardino Mountains on a hillside less than 20 feet from the side of the road. Duvall's pants were undone and pulled down. There was fine sand unlike the surrounding area on the soles of Duvall's shoes, legs, and around his privates. Duvall was wearing Jeffrey Nelson's jacket that he had been wearing earlier in the day. Duvall had been strangled and anal swabs taken at autopsy showed the presence of semen. Like Nelson, Duvall did have alcohol in his system to the point of 0.07 and he also had diazepam and propononol. I'm not sure how to say that word in his system, but they were noted to be, quote, at the therapeutic levels. He would have been woozy or even kind of sleepy during the attack. Jeffrey Nelson and Roger Duvall Jr. were the last bodies or the last victims of Randy Kraft, which were discovered on the side of the road before his May 83 arrest. And not surprisingly, once Randy Kraft was taken into jail, young men in California and Oregon could breathe a sigh of relief because the body count finally stopped. That is all I have for you today. I'll bring you the conclusion of Randy Kraft and his terror next week in part three and the finale of this serial killer series. Join me next week, y'all, where I conclude my story on the terror that was Randy Kraft. Make sure that you're following me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. Executive producers are Falcon 13, Nicole, Alicia, and Tina S., owner of Stitch 6 to 6 Embroidery. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you the conclusion of serial killer Randy Kraft's story. Let's work on another podcast.